This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hey, traders, this is Eddie Horn from Top Step, and this is Limit Up. This is where we talk with traders, market participants, and trading psychologists to help you improve your trading. I'm joined today by Mark Meadows. Hello, Mark. Hey, Eddie. Now, Mark, today I'm talking with Irina Slav. Now, she's an author, a journalist, and a well-studied student of crude oil, and she knows a lot about the Middle East. That's right. It's a great time, Eddie, to talk with her with what's going on in crude markets. I think last week we had a... The culmination of a 30% plus sell-off over the past uh, month and a half, uh, taking crude oil to its lows. So uh, we're seeing a lot of interest from our traders, and this will be a great primer to get them right back up to speed. You know, I, I got to agree with you, Mark. I love trading crude. Uh, crude's my number one uh, market that I do trade. And uh, with the market moves, it's really putting traders in a good position to uh, capitalize on uh, trading the crude. That's if you can catch it on the right move. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, energy's market is a mind of its own, and uh, trying to ride it uh, or pick tops and bottoms has been the downfall of uh, many trader, uh, including one natural gas trader that uh, kind of went viral last week. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to what Irina has to say about crude oil energies and uh, the future. All right, then. Uh, let's get started and... Uh excuse the pun, but hey, let's pump it up with Irina Slob. In her teens, Irina spent three years at Cambridge College studying communication studies, psychology, and modern world history, uh, which later made journalism the path that made the most sense. A lasting interest in Middle Eastern affairs, along with a genetic predisposition towards all things mining and minerals, led to a focus on energy. Irina dove into the oil world in 2006 and has not resurfaced since. I'd like to welcome Irina Slav. Irina, how are you? Hello, Eddie. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. Uh, very nice to have you here with us. And I, I got to admit, first off, that, uh, you know, being the crude trader, you know, we all try to search for knowledge and information that we have access to. And I came across some of your articles and I was taken by them in uh, a very positive way and becoming a big fan of Irina and uh, the articles that you write. All right, well, let's let's dive in to the, uh, the lovely tank of crude. Now, one of the questions uh, that maybe some of us know, some of us don't know, uh, we talk about WTI. We talk about Brent Oil. If you can, you being the uh, energy, the crude expert here, uh, we also talk about light and heavy oil. What are some of the differences? WTI versus Brent, light versus heavy, and uh, what are some of the uses? Right, so uh, WTI is uh, the U.S. futures contract. It's a benchmark. There are many different blends, grades of crude produced uh, in the U.S., so, you know, you, you have to have a reference point, which is West Texas Intermediate. Uh, same with Brent oil. It, there's an actually a, a, a Brent field in the North Sea. Don't know if you knew that. But um, Brent is the international benchmark. It's 
accrued futures contract, which I'm sure you know. But it's basically a reference point. You can't have um, uh, the, the contracts for each and every grade. Irina, OPEC. OPEC has been involved um, and actually, you know, doing a broadcast here and doing podcasts and following along uh, with the, the news, you know, uh, with OPEC. It seems like OPEC is having a problem uh, agreeing <laughs> amongst themselves. OPEC having a problem uh, at least deciding what they want to do. Now, every <laughs> once in a while, yeah. we do hear about an oil minister from OPEC that you know, would step forward and have an announcement, and then we'd see the market move uh, with his announcement. We've seen that a lot. It seems like yeah. crude oil, uh, trading it is on a hot plate and anything uh, that hits that turns the market either uh, bull bear and we do see a lot yeah. of fluctuation now speaking of opec what's their main goal and function well as i'm sure you've seen whatever they say you know about partnership and coordination it's all about controlling prices i mean that's obvious uh, it's uh, it's no coincidence they are being called a cartel. It's not really, you know, negative anymore. They are a cartel. Uh, the purpose of this organization is to protect its members through, you know, cooperation and coordinating production so they can keep prices at a certain level. And we've seen uh, a lot of that recently. A lot of that, I mean, very active uh, in some instances, uh, frantic attempts to stop prices from falling because let's right. be fair they are most of them quite dependent on their oil revenues now at certain times you know OPEC would step up to the plate and they would have an announcement almost a threatening announcement and it would not play through and you'd see the you'd see the crude markets sort of moving in in their in their own direction really not being affected on what they say. And then it takes a little time before OPEC uh, gets credibility back again. OPEC's consequences don't play out. Why is that? Chief among them is because of U.S. shale. You know, uh, I'm sure you remember when uh, oil prices started falling four years ago, the OPEC strategy was to keep pumping, you know, kill uh, shale by bringing prices so low they couldn't survive. Indeed, many did not survive, but many did. And then OPEC basically had the ball in its half and they got hit harder. The difference was that US producers were private companies, private in as much as they're not state-owned, while OPEC is a collection of state-owned companies. So these states depend on this revenue a lot more than the U.S. depends on the revenue of its oil companies. Really, this strategy of pump them to death backfired back in 2014. Now, U.S., with their productions yeah. and such, 
So this is sort of hindering credibility for OPEC as the U.S. does pump the production of their oil. Oh, yes, yes. It's now one of the top three producers globally, along with Saudi Arabia and Russia. That's huge, and it's it's messing with OPEC's strategy, which we could see now that they are making contradictory statements. You know, when they, they say... We have it covered, the Iranian sanctions and any shortage. We have it covered. There's enough supply. We will pump more. And there may be too much supply. You know, speaking of supply, the price of oil is four times more sensitive to an increase in oil supply by non-OPEC countries than by OPEC countries in the long run. I mean, why is this? That's exactly why this is, because OPEC is... A, a sort of a constant. You know where you are with OPEC. You know that OPEC aims to keep prices at a certain level. They play together. They're a team. Okay? But non-OPEC producers, they don't have any obligation to play for this team. It could be the United States or, or Russia or... You know, it's one thing with, with trading crude, like I mentioned, uh, you know, you get a comment from an oil minister or you see the market move and yeah, you're wondering, yeah. you're, you're wondering, you know, what happened? And then you, you find out that uh, you know, somebody came up and said something or um, uh, you know, a party. It's kind of scary. You know, somebody says something, you know, throws a comment and the market moves. How big of a risk is the U.S. to OPEC's production strategy? Now, you, you just mentioned that. It leads the price of oil. What's your take on that? The U.S. is the biggest risk for OPEC strategy right now, even considering the fact that Russia has joined OPEC in its strategy. And that's big, you know, because Saudi Arabia and Russia together account for a lot of the world's oil. But so does the U.S. And it's the third biggest producer, not in order of, production but it's one of the top three and they're competing so it's a huge risk they are not sure where they are with u.s production growing constantly it's growing relentlessly all right you mentioned production opec's compliance to the production cut agreement started out pretty strong but it has weakened terribly now several countries have fallen short of commitment expectations, talking mm -hmm. about Iraq, Algeria, and uh, United Arab Emirates. What are some of the major problems here that hinders OPEC's commitments? Yeah, well, actually, they, they um, back in June, they decided to stop cutting, but they did have problems. Yeah, they actually slipped into overcompliance at a certain point because of Venezuela and its uh, problems and because of production outages in uh, Libya and Nigeria, but now they're talking about cuts again. I'm not sure they can do it again because, as I said, most of these uh, governments are dependent on their oil revenues. So they're walking a fine line between pumping enough to have enough money and keeping prices high enough to make it worthwhile. Irina, let me ask you something here. Just going directly to the source, where is crude going? Where are we going to see crude here in six months, a half a year? Where are we going to see crude in about a year? 
in six months. Oh, wow. I would say it wouldn't be much higher than it is now, unless something happens, some production outage that lasts more than a couple of days, like Libya's production outages. So unless a major outage happens or, uh, you know, the waivers, the Iranian sanction waivers expire and uh, the Trump administration doesn't grant new ones, then it could go a lot higher. But I don't think this will happen. Okay. And I tell you, just watching crude, it has given us a a good ride. Um, <laughs> it's very unpredictable. Like I said, anybody says anything, it's almost like a panic trade market where... Exactly. Yeah. You know, somebody comes out and says something and it really... Even if it's a source from a source, you see the markets moving. So I appreciate that. I'm I'm on the same bus with you. I, I really don't think, uh, it, unless something does happen, uh, in, unless we see a major decision or a major flaw or something to that effect, you know, crude is just plodding along and crude is being crude. Now, Irina, uh, we have a Facebook community. I want to invite you to it. If you ever have a chance, by all means, stop by, say hello. We have a lot of crude traders in the Top Step Trading Combine, trading crude as I do, and uh, even some of them are fans of your articles. So what I wanted to do is include the community for open questions to you, and and I've got some for you if you are uh, up for the task. Of course. Okay. Bring them on. All right. I'm bringing them on. Uh, (laughs) All right. This question is from Al Bender. Al is asking, Iran has seen many sanctions following the revolution in 1979 and the U.S. hostage crisis. New sanctions are just added to old sanctions. Just recently, Iranian oil minister warned Trump to stop interfering in the Middle East if he wants prices to stop increasing. This is said to be the obstacle in the export of Iran's oil. There's more to the story here. What can you tell us? Okay, President Trump does have a thing for Iran. We've all seen this. He's using this dependency on the government on oil revenues to, you know, try and bring down this government. We've seen that the Trump administration is quite big on sanctions in general. That's what they're doing. They don't like this uh, government. And... Let's not forget that uh, the U.S. is an ally of Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is fighting Iran, not directly, thankfully, now. But, yeah, there's this regional conflict, and you have to take a side. You can't not take a side, so let's use the oil to make a point. Basically, simple geopolitics. I don't know, it's pretty obvious to me, though, probably not to... Not to everyone who's not following the Middle East closely. Uh, What the sanctions are trying to do is enact a regime change in Iran by doing pretty much the same they are doing in Venezuela. But as we saw with the waivers, Iran's oil is important to a lot of countries and there is not enough oil from other producers to compensate for a drop in Iranian exports, which is why Washington ended up 
granting waivers to all the big importers of uranium oil. Right. They granted the waivers to Japan, to South Korea, to China, to India, which very much betrayed the purpose, and which is why oil uh, has just entered the blue market. Now, you say betrayed the purpose. Would it have been more straight to the point if there was no exceptions? Well, yes, that's what they were talking about since May. There will be no exceptions. And now they are saying these uh, waivers are temporary. I believe them. The waivers must be temporary. But what happens then? Right. It'll be interesting to watch, definitely. All right. Next question is from Sean McFarland. Okay. Sean's asking, as the Iranian sanctions take effect, what, if any, actions do you see taking place internationally to adjust crude production levels? And how do you see markets reacting? Well, we've been seeing this already. OPEC raising production, Russia hitting a new record, and the U.S. raising production. And do you remember where oil prices were on November 5th when the uh, sanctions came into effect? They didn't move much. Everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people expected a spike in prices. But first of all, everybody had already prepared for this. And then the news of the waivers came, and the market didn't really say anything more than meh, meh. Meanwhile, the European Union is still, I think, trying to find a way to continue importing Iranian crude. China said it will continue buying Iranian crude, and Russia said they will help Iran market their crude, despite the sanctions. So this is what's happening. Saudi Arabia and OPEC are saying, and they are boosting production to offset any shortage, and importers are trying and finding ways to continue importing Iranian oil. So there's not a lot of change today. You know, importers are trying to keep importing, and that's it. They're doing fine for the time being. All right, Irina, the price of commodity depends on its demand and supply. Mm. Uh, crude plays right into that. With all that affects the rise and fall of crude, what's next for oil prices? Now that we've talked about where prices would be in six months, in the immediate term, I would really like to see what uh, could happen to stop the slide in prices. Because shale producers are not going to stop building production. They'll continue producing more. Now, if OPEC cuts, I don't know if this will be enough in light of forecasts of uh, sluggish demand. The International Energy Agency recently came out with its outlook, and it's not very optimistic about oil demand growth. And OPEC itself yesterday released its latest uh, monthly report, and it's revised its global demand outlook downwards as well. Now, don't they revise it? Yeah, they revise it every month, but in the last four months, they've revised it downwards consistently, four months in a row, which is saying something if OPEC is doing it, because, you know, right. OPEC is not a, an independent authority on energy markets. It has a vested interest in higher demand. So if they are being increasingly pessimistic about demand growth, that's not very bullish for oil in the immediate term, you know. Let me ask you something 
question coming here uh, from Kim about natural gas. Uh, natural gas has been called the widow maker. I know we use that term a lot here because it moves so much. U.S. has secured natural gas contracts internationally, and the infrastructure is being added worldwide. Do you know who the major players are in the gas market? Uh, besides the U.S.? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, Qatar is still the biggest exporter. Australia is number two, I think, right now, uh, and it's got uh, a couple of projects this year. They actually came on stream already. Russia, you can not mention Russia, and uh, Iran is big in gas, although let's say it's uh, a bit constrained. The U.S. is actually uh, an emergent player. It exports a lot of gas to Mexico, but it needs to conquer markets far, far away. It needs uh, Europe and Asia, which is why it's building so much uh, liquefaction capacity. Okay. All right, I got uh, last question here from our community. Taylor is asking, mm -hmm. do you think electric cars will overtake gasoline-powered <laughs> cars in the near future? What's your take on that? Um, I love this topic. I really do. I love electric cars. They don't smell. But uh, if we define near future uh, as the next five years or so, then no. no. They really have a wall to climb with uh, batteries, which need to get more reliable with longer ranges, allowing longer ranges and cheaper, which is not an easy thing to do. You know, combining efficiency, reliability, you know, they, they are prone to uh, combustion, lithium-ion batteries, and they really need to get cheaper so EVs uh, could become mainstream. So I don't see it really in the near future. Ten years from now, maybe they will begin to enter the mainstream because let's not forget that they also need infrastructure. Right. Batteries are a big problem but you also need a charging infrastructure. All right, Irina, you're a wealth of knowledge in the energy sector. Now, my question to you is, how do you obtain all this expertise on this subject? You know, my undying desire to learn more about it, to understand more about it. It's fascinating. The energy world is really, really fascinating. You like what you're doing, and I do love what I'm doing. I always want to know more and it builds up and you know you start making connections and drawing conclusions it's simple really if you love what you're doing you you do it well let me ask you Irina you know you said there's a lot of dedication there's a lot as traders can you give us any hints on what we need to look for to possibly catch the crude moves before they are really happening Oh, that's a tough one. No, but it's, it's a nice challenge. You know what I've noticed uh, from what we talked about, uh, how the market reacts to every word? Right. Uh, all ministers say, I would advise a little patience. I know when you're, a, especially if you're a day trader, I know this is uh, difficult to do, but, you know, keep an open mind. Don't jump on every word and pretty much the only thing I would I would do 
Right. So, so patience so, is going to pay yeah, off, so especially if you're patience. a crew trader. Yeah, yeah. And if there is time, look for more than one perspective. Because these statements never come in isolation. You know, one minister says this, President Trump tweets, Saudi Arabia's Alpolik said we'll be cutting exports. A day later, President Trump tweets they should not cut production. It's never just one comment. It's always more than one. It's like a tennis match. It's back and forth and back and forth. And <laughs> it's just a matter of, you know. Yeah, you got to watch the ball. Catch, yeah, watch the ball, catch the wave at the right time, uh, get in, get out. Now, um, Irene, I really appreciate you being with us here today and uh, very informative. And I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to bring you on the podcast for an interview. Now, some of those that are listening right now are probably saying, well, I, you know, I'd like to uh, follow Irina or contact Irina, uh, ask her a question or so. How can somebody contact you online? Uh, well, I basically hang out uh, on Twitter at uh, IrinaSlav1, uh, I-R-I-N-A-S-L-A-V-1. The number one. Okay. The number one, yeah. Okay. With the caveat, I don't just tweet about oil. I also tweet about fiction writing, so that's a fair warning. <laughs> that's a fair warning. It's good writing. I, I, I follow it all. All the best to you in Bulgaria, and uh, hopefully we can get together again on an update and do an updated podcast in the world of oil. Sure, uh, that would be great. Right. Irina, have a great evening, and uh, talk to you soon. You too. And we're back. Now, one thing I really didn't put together, and I'll be honest with you, is that the OPEC versus the U.S. Now, I knew that the battle was forever going on, but uh, U.S. producers, private companies, uh, OPEC, a collection of state-owned companies. And I knew there was a lot of state-owned companies, uh, but I didn't know the, the versus private owners versus state owners. Now, OPEC's plan to pump the private companies to death. We did see that, and it backfired. Yeah, Eddie, that was a... Uh... Really great way that she just framed that whole conversation when she talked about foreign governments, Saudi Arabia, Iran, etc., are so reliant on oil income in order to fund their economies. Mm -hmm. um, and so when OPEC tries to kill those U.S. producers by, you know, oversupplying and pushing the price down, uh, that really backfired. Mark. With what Irina said about how there's no one force working to curb overproduction, and we see that a lot, overproduction, overproduction in crude and many countries just working around the U.S. sanctions. Do you think this back and forth saber crude rattling, is it ever going to direct crude either north or south? It's going to be tough to say. I, you know, I thought what Irina had to, to say in her analysis was really uh, insightful uh, in that she didn't you know, see a huge upside over the, you know, coming year for crude oil prices. She had a really downbeat uh, view of uh, demand for crude oil. You know, I think what she was saying is even if OPEC, if U.S. producers, you know, start to cut production, that's not going to do a thing because de demand is also falling. So uh, demand falling, production falling, Prices stay the same. Right. And she also mentioned about the slide that um, she didn't know what could stop this crude slide. And, you know, bringing into the conversation was the shale producers. 
and they are nowhere near stopping production. Uh, one of the other things that was mentioned was the IEA outlook wasn't very optimistic either on overproduction. Yeah, it seems like the the theme right now is if you have crude, you're going to produce it. Those U.S. shale producers um, that have it in the ground, that have the equipment, those shale producers, they're not being disincentivized by the current price of crude oil. So, you know, it's, it seems like that, that production is going to keep rolling. Uh, and Irina was very clear about that. So I don't follow it as closely as she does. Uh, as a trader, you know, I'm kind of going to let that determine my macro view. You know, you have to at some point, you know, figure out reliable sources of information to, to get this kind of information from. And I think Irina was very clear about that. And I'm going to be following her and following what she's writing about and, and helping that determine some of my medium-term outlook on crude. Fantastic. And for you crude traders out there, the story has just begun. Mark, thanks for being with us here today. I appreciate your input on Irina's podcast and would love to have you back again. Uh, all right, traders, as always, thanks for spending time with us. And if you enjoyed this interview, please feel free to leave us a rating or a review. Remember, it helps us reach new traders. And until then, we'll see you next time. Mark, thanks, buddy. See you, Eddie. Take care. Bye-bye. Editing and post-production of this episode was done by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.